The following podcast is about so many aspects of life, and life is messy. Adult language and themes ahead. Listener discretion is advised. Pull up like a gangster. It is what it is. Smoke it up and I feel so lit. Yeah, I got the money grip. Yeah, it's got off in the whip. Be it, holla, cut up in the moment. Yeah, we be it, on it. I fuck it, can't it, we feel it, on it. Don't wanna control it. I think I like it, yeah. Trigger warning, ready yourself, because now we're going there. Taboo Topics are back on the table. Welcome back. I'm Matt. I'm Joe. And I'm LeJohn, and this is the Going There Podcast. One of our very first episodes was on white privilege, and so far, I don't know if you guys have noticed, that one's gotten the most feedback and kind of the best response, especially from white people, which is really cool. Because those are the people who really need to hear what's going on with privilege. Um, So people have reached out. Even people who I thought would never click with that topic have said that it made sense to them, that it got through to them. And that's awesome. And so what I think we've all learned is to try to share as much as possible that it takes so much more than just not being racist. That in order to level the playing field and attain true equality is that we have to be anti-racist. And it all begins with the willingness to... Go there. Oh, Go shit. there. I said it. Said the name. Ask questions and have awkward conversations. And so here today to have an awkward conversation with us is my friend and colleague, an actress and writer, and recently an online activist known as the anti-racist white chick, the woman who proves you can be sexy and funny simultaneously, Miss Nicola Graham. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you for that tagline. <laughs> <laughs> you you can have it. That's yours. That's amazing. I'm going to quote it. Yes. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Meeting you as well as your friend and colleague, Elizabeth, was like one of my huge highlights of last year because we got to work on the social distance project together. It was so much fun. And you had a standout scene where you were essentially <laughs> on a Zoom date. And left the camera on while you were on the can. Yeah, yeah, it was, that's one of my finer, sexier moments. Yeah. It's all about class for me. Yeah. So. I don't know if I laughed harder at the footage or the email you sent with the footage. Oh, the ten-page email. It was a ten-page apology. I am so sorry. I understand if you never want to use this. I also understand if you never want to talk to me again. And I'm like, are you kidding me? After watching this, I, we better be best friends. Exactly. After this. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. And I think it was like two in the morning your time by the time you got the footage and you responded back. And I was like, oh, my gosh, thank God. I was I was just nervous. Now he's too into it, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's this? Send me more poop shots. about? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the good news. The studio execs got back to me. They love it. They want to do a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they want to do a sequel. <laughs> Yeah. More coverage. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Other than being filmed on toilets often, uh, what uh, what's your background? You're living in L.A. doing the actress and performer thing, which is tough. Yeah, um, it's, it's been quite a journey out here in L.A. I'm uh, born and raised in Texas, so I have evolved, I should say. Um, so I got out here about 20 years ago, and I will just say on this journey, I was a Republican, I was Catholic, and I was a meat eater. And now I am a Democrat, vegan, anti-racist kind of Buddhist. 
So, like, so you're not allowed back in your home state at all. I am yeah. not allowed. <laughs> posters of me everywhere. Um, uh, but I will just say, I, Los Angeles, I think, has just given me a whole new life and soul. Um, and I, uh, contrary to what a lot of people say, I have found who I am and who I want to be and, and pushing myself further because of LA and the people out here and the movement. Um, I'm just really grateful to the city. But I also evolved. I came out, you know, wanting to do dramatic acting and then sort of led into comedy and improv and, and now into, you know, social justice content creation, but and also trying to marry that with comedy. Um, <laughs> Skillfully, um, hopefully. Very skillfully. Very skillfully. Uh, thank you. And we talk about it all the time on here. Levity, when it comes to the heartbreaking things, is so damn important. Mm-hmm. Because then you're experiencing more than one emotion with your audience. And that's that's important. And Joe's talked about it, too. If it was all heartstrings and tugging. My heart be on the damn floor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be too emotionally exhausting. Yeah. No, nobody has time for that. Agreed. And it, you don't reach as many people that way, too. And I think, um, especially as I'm sure we might dig into, white people are very uh, scared of this word and scared of learning and just talking about it. So if you can make it approachable or learn to sort of laugh at it, I think it, it invites more people in, which is, is the whole point to the white people movement. Yeah, I think as soon as you tell a white person they're racist, they're going to shut down. Completely. It's not going to help them be less racist. No, no, not at all. Pisses them off, in fact. Yeah. Agreed. I I get annoyed every episode we record in here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Matt has some work to do. (laughs) No, you know what's funny is 20 years ago, I moved out to L.A., but I I, I obviously didn't stick around. I washed out quick. But you are absolutely right in saying I found who I am there as much as anywhere else. I was the only white, straight, like Protestant male in my whole group of friends. I had Muslim friend. I had Jewish friends. I had gay friends. I had African, like every nationality, everything across the board. And they were the ones who helped you break down those stereotypes and go, man, I think I've been thinking this wrong for a long time, right? That's so great. What, what part of Texas were you from? North Dallas is, is the main guy, Plano. Crimson? Very crimson. Like, yeah. And I went to school, so Maroon, yeah, my uh, Texas A&M, um, oh, wow. which is definitely not the liberal school of the state. No. Um, you know, my cousin, yeah. who's an immigrant from Lebanon, went to Texas A&M and actually enjoyed it. That's awesome. It was a great, it is a great school, I will say. I just. Um, no, it seems very conservative, though. my ways, very conservative. Well, and you and yeah. you even said it was your cousin from Lebanon. They're very conservative people. And the Lebanese people. are very conservative. They, <laughs> they hate Arabs sometimes, too. They <laughs> think that they are from Plano, Texas. Yeah. That's Johnny Manziel <laughs> land down there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. They're like, what are the, all these Arabs doing immigrating here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Close the border. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're like, build the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's awesome that you're at where you're at. And I feel like you and I had pretty similar experiences as far as when we started realizing that it was time to do more than just not be racist. Let's talk a little bit about that. So you started your vlog series, I think, not too long after George Floyd. Absolutely. George George was my catalyst. And I know he represents everybody um but he was he was my breaking point so i i owe so much to 
the witnessing of his trauma. So I was one of those people that was like, I don't watch the news. I'm not political. And I, I was really proud of that. I'm, I'm in a lot of into the law of attraction. So I'm like, what do you think about you get? And so I was just thinking about good things and I just sort of wanted to stay surface. And I had two people be like, oh yeah, the video of that guy. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't listen to the news. And I was, I was kind of really proud about it. And in that was realizing after I started seeing my inactions and being racist in my inactions, that that it just, it wasn't something to be proud of. And so when I find, I never, I still have not watched the video. I, you know, you see pictures of it and I don't think I can sustain that to be honest, but I just saw what was happening and started to look and, um, you know, you can still say in a vibration where you want the world to be better um, with while you are looking at what is actually happening and being somebody that wants to make a difference in that world. And that actually elevates me more than just, you know, watching Disney movies and ignoring the truth of, of what's actually happening. So he was definitely my catalyst. And and then I started reading Abra, um, Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he, just even in the beginning, explains how being someone that is not racist is actually still being racist. You have to be anti-racist. You have to have your actions and your words. And um, it was such an aha moment just continually. And something that I feel like my soul already knew, which is why it was so easy to connect, um, because all of these things um, were things I, I already knew as a person and who I am as a person. I just never really allowed myself to go there. How how many relationships has this cost you? Friends, family? Yeah, good question. It is a great question. I will say the one that is really hard for me is my dad. Um, it hasn't cost me the relationship, but I can't talk to him about this. I try to sort of bring it up. He It kind of just ignores it. He kind of just changes the subject. And it's really hard to not only be really passionate about this and, and to kind of know that this is something that I deeply want to continue doing for the rest of my life, but that I can't share it with this man that means so much to me. That, to me, is the biggest sort of chasm of this all. And it has kind of cost me some friendships that I thought would be more supportive in me putting myself out there as me for the first time. Um, I've never been like, I'm Nicola Graham. I've always been under the actress facade or the comedy facade. And um, to just have friends that didn't really support me being terrified um, really, really sort of showed me who's in my corner and who shows up. And it also brought people out that I didn't expect to show up. So it's sort of been a nice wash, a white wash, if you will. Um, <laughs> the, good, the good kind, kind of white wash. comfortable with. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The great kind of white wash. So, yeah, it's interesting to see, like, who survives. But it also has helped me define who I want in my life um, moving forward. I feel like you and I, we have very parallel stories. My parents are still deeply in, not that they're racist outright, but they've bought into some really bad politics. And uh, my dad, especially who I've always been super close with, it's hard to continue a meaningful relationship that isn't built on anything besides history. And uh, that goes for a lot of friendships. And I think people's silence 
says even more than some of the people speaking out. And I made a post really early on, like after George Floyd, and I said, I'm really saddened by the amount of friends and family who are silent right now. And it isn't a screw you, because I, I think we need to give ourselves a little bit of credit. It was, we didn't realize that this was a need. We hadn't experienced it enough. I'm not saying we're like completely vindicated, but you know, it's understandable. It's, it's learning. We're like, we're still learning and growing as a society, but especially as white people who grew up in predominantly white areas, you know, red states, it's been heartbreaking because it's not like, well, fuck that person anyway. I mean, yeah, you kind of feel that way with some of them, but losing losing a friend uh, or or I guess learning that you have so little in common with someone you once thought you had everything in common. With. Yeah, that's the heartbreak. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. I don't want to minimize that. Not Not for pity. I think just for empathy for anyone who is afraid to go for it. That's just the truth. It, it's sad. It's heartbreaking. And it doesn't make it any easier. But there is the intrinsic reward of doing good and being on the right. So but what is the way to um, because, as we said, when you just label somebody racist and you are attacking their immediate reaction is to be defensive and to put their walls up. Now, if we're saying being anti-racist, we're trying to unify. So how do you how do you do that in a way that is like not scary to these Old racist white ladies <laughs> who are like really don't want to be called racist. Or Karen. Or Karen's or <laughs> Right. All the young racist white ladies. I think I think it's all such great questions. And it's so interesting too, because as I had mentioned, I was Republican, so I was on that side. And I know George W. Republican's different than Trump Republican, but I still wasn't I was still just not aware. And I I shifted. And I will say the thing that I have to keep trying to remind myself of, even with Trump people, is you can get there. Like, you can change. You can shift from this person to this person. And it's so easy for me now to sit on this side and be like, not that I'm better than them, but sort of uh, discount them and judge them and hate them in a lot of ways. And I I heard a, a quote last night that said, you can't organize people that you hate. And as white people, it is our job to organize these people. And if we're not going to organize them, someone else will. And the the two groups that I'm a part of that I would love to give a shout out, the, the nationwide one is showing up for racial justice, Surge, S-U-R-J. And they are incredible. And there's, na- there's chapters all over. The L.A. chapter is White People for Black Lives and Aware L.A., and they talk about all of this stuff and they have these beautiful workshops. And, and some of them, the main thing that they talk about is curiosity, is coming to someone, not needing to change them, not needing them to be anything besides they are, but just to ask some questions, why? Why this? And sort of probe. And then if it gets to a point to say, let's just pause the conversation, we can come back. And I will say that space that was given to me 15 years ago, people were like, but why, Nikki? I just don't understand. Like, why is this? What, what, what is this? You seem like this type of person. And I was defensive in the moment. And then I went home and I thought about it for the first time in my life. Well, why? Why am I saying these things? Because I didn't believe them, but I didn't know I didn't believe them until someone lovingly questioned me. And then I started to unearth that. So as I'm saying this to myself, because I have a hard time doing it with certain people right now, not giving up on them, I really think, not giving up on anyone, not judging, not coming from a place of anything, but 
curiosity and love and wanting to pull them to us. Like, cause hate is the whole reason why we don't like them, if you will. Right. It doesn't help. That's, I think, where I failed. Me too. So it was just a couple months ago, I think, uh, LeJohn, Joe and I were talking about possibly doing like a sketch show or something. And I remember I called you up, uh-huh. I called or emailed you and, and just said, Hey, would you want to collaborate and maybe do something from the West coast? And I remember, cause you said the words that I was feeling deep down. And it, I think it's what pushed me to this podcast. Instead, you're like, I just don't feel like being funny right now. And I was like, God damn it. You're right. And I hadn't been funny. I had been pissing people off online. <laughs> and I wasn't saying anything crazy other than just like, hey, you say you're a Christian. What would Jesus do? Literally, he would be leading a Kill black, black lives- people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be leading the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, are you kidding me? He'd be standing there at the protest. Yeah. That's right when I think I was like, you know what? I need to do something that matters, like with purpose. Turn around a couple of days later and, and you're like cranking out episodes. So tell us a little bit about <laughs> the anti-racist white chick. Well, I'm so glad of what y'all are doing and we can all still do a sketch show. Let's just say that. Um, but yeah, I do feel like especially it was June that I sort of had my awake, like real awakening, or at least when I started getting into action on it, um, wanting to somehow create in the name of George and Brianna and Eric and Michael and, and everybody, Sandra, that has just fucking suffered. And I had to create. I had done the poop scene. <laughs> I had done Where do we go from here? <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere. <laughs> yeah, and you did some like quarantine sketches. Like you were staying pretty creative. I was. I was for my sanity because um, I will say, as I know everyone has their own brand of suffering in this. I was really suffering. I was, I have two lovely cats um, and I'm by myself in my apartment. And so I was really isolated. I was scared for money. I was scared for safety. I had nobody, you see everybody just doing fucking puzzles together and like games. And, <laughs> you can't like, do this puzzle I'm by myself. Like, <laughs> uh, no, that is terrible. That's the ultimate love. <laughs> I needed to create, I think. And so once I sort of had this and, and I was like, I don't want to be funny anymore. I don't want to post things on Instagram that don't mean anything. And so I had to sort of look into that. And I, as I started reading, you know, Ebron's book and really just, delving, I was like, I'm just going to talk about it. I'm just going to be like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm saying, but I have to say something. And so this is not a judgment on anybody. This is, this is what I'm learning. And I did not know this and this is it. And so I just progressively kept unearthing things and the things that would speak to me. I, I started it sort of as like a quote unquote talk show with really bad graphics. And then after I sort of did, I think five or so, the air was lightening in the world a little bit. It wasn't as grave. And so I was like, let me see if I can maybe change the formula up a little bit to then invite more people in. So I did a little spoken word and then I started adding in some comedy and I also started truncating. I was realizing, you know, after three minutes, people are like, bye, or they won't even click on it. Damn attention spans. (laughs) Actually, LeJohn, you're a good person to talk on this. When it comes to white people talking about racism and more specifically anti-racism, are you a little more forgiving when the intention is there? If they maybe say the wrong thing, because none of us really know what to say. Let's be honest. Well, that's just the wonderful thing about it for me, because when you are taking the time to say anything for that matter, that's where the appreciation starts. For years, we've been talking about it, but 
what good is us continuing to talk about it if nobody else is helping us talk about it? And the people that we need to have talk about it are people who don't look like us, the people who for years we have been oppressed by. And that's why I love what you're doing and what you have been doing. And I tell people all the time that, that when people were asking me, especially around George Floyd and everything, saying, what can I do? I said, be aware and let it be known that you are aware. OK, and, uh, and, and don't just keep that in your back pocket and everything. Don't just keep it to your side. Use your voice. Express. That means so much. This term ally that we that we use uh, for people who are using their their platform or using their stance to, to, to use their voice against all this bullshit and everything. It, it means the world to us. LeJohn, what about the people who um, if you see on Facebook, white people are like, I'm anti-racist, giving themselves like a pat on the back. I mean, what do you think about just those kind of posts? Do you feel like they're empty? Do you feel like they're symbolically still helpful? Like I asked with everything. You could make that statement, but why? Why do you think that you're anti-racist? What are you What are you doing? What have you done to make you have that kind of statement? And I threw it all my white clothes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't use bleach when I wash my whites. Yeah. <laughs> One of the interesting things that I learned about through Surge is there's so many principles to white people about white supremacy and how much it has harmed us. And what's so interesting is. I think a lot of white people come at this like, oh, I, I'm just going to help the black people and being altruistic and the white savior thing like that. And what I don't think white people really understand is how harmed we are by this. People will definitely stop being racist once they realize that they're being affected. It's about yeah. them. Yeah. Agreed. Right. It's like the mask thing. That was the worst thing Americans did was tell them it was to save others if we if it was like you wear a mask to protect yourself everybody be fucking masked up right yeah, now exactly <laughs> like, and and if they just realize how harmful white supremacy is to them especially everybody but the like you know two percent one percent all of those people but what i think is so interesting is one of the main principles of white supremacy is perfectionism like needing to be perfect and not trying anything until you're perfect so it's so funny that keeps us wrapped up in this white supremacy bubble is the perfectionism that won't even allow us to start to have the conversation because it doesn't matter if we're saying it wrong and it doesn't matter. It's just we have to talk about it. And Ibram talks about it, too, in his book about the reason why racist is a bad word is because the people that don't want us to talk about race made it a bad word. So we are scared to talk about it. We're scared to be called it. But it's fluid. It's like right now I might be being anti-racist, but I might be racist in my next action. It's not a title. It's a verb. And it's like how you're being. And so just. Starting like it's that you don't have to be perfect, and I definitely know I start with that too. Like even in writing, I'm like, oh, I don't know, but it's like just just throw some stuff down on a paper, you know, just start. You don't have to be perfect, and that is part of the culture that has been built to keep us small and to keep us blaming another race, so that we don't all rise up together in power against the people that are pushing us all down. I, I have a question that I want to ask my white friends here and our white listeners and everything else, because I've been really dying to know this as a parent. I'm a parent of two. OK, if I see a child that's acting out of hand, that's that's being bad in public and everything. If I feel like I can assist in this child fixing their situational behavior, I'm going to unconsciously do it because unconsciously I am an elder. I am a parent and this child should respect me. It's unconscious. I don't even think about it. Little boy, get your ass. Get up. Get off the floor. 
Put, put that down. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't have to be my kid, okay? LaJohn at Chuck E. Cheese is a scary sight. I'm scared, my <laughs> friend. Yeah. Pulling kids out of the ball. Yeah. Get out of there. <laughs> they made your tokens, goddammit. Yeah, seriously. So it has to be so unconscious. You to at one point in all of your lives feel the white supremacy because from the beginning it was set. It was set in there that this is how it's supposed to be. And there has to be at least one moment. And if there is, I am not calling you a shitty person. You're not awful. I'm not going to, you know, excommunicate you out of my life, all that kind of stuff. But think about it just as much as I unconsciously can look at that kid at Chuck E. Cheese, put them goddamn tokens down. Maybe yours. There has to be a time when you looked at someone who didn't look like you, and it could be the smallest bit in your soul that felt like you were above. Does that, does that example make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to answer that. I think because it's nature and nurture, you know, I think racism is inherited in a lot of senses. Right. And it's not your fault. That's the point I'm really making. No, no, no. I'm not, no, it's but I'm, I'm glad. John's fault yelling yeah. at me at Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah, I'm happy for you to judge me. Um, <laughs> Those were I, my tokens. If I'm being honest, I think my white supremacy was more tied to class. I think I was more classist than I was racist uh, subconsciously. Well, I, I think a lot of racism is tied to class, which is yeah. I, I talk about growing up in a university town and it was really nice because there were people of all different cultures, but it was also all university pay. So then you learn about cultural differences in a way of like, oh, the food and the holidays versus whatever crimes happen with socioeconomic inequality. Which you tied a race. So wow. basically, so basically at Chuck E. Cheese, you guys get more tokens than I do. That's what you're saying. To me well, right obviously. <laughs> well, I don't because I'm a woman. But yeah, <laughs> that's true. Only seventy five percent. I will say yes, a hundred percent, Lajon. Um, not only through parents, possibly, but just society in general. So let's say I have the most anti-racist parents, you still get it from school, you still get it from other people's parents. And I'm also reading, Matt, I know you talked about it on the second episode, My Grandmother's Hands. And not only are you getting it societally, but you're also getting it genetically. Like trauma is literally passed down through genes. And even in my anti-racist best, on my best anti-racist day, I still will have judgments of people walking down the street and, you know, in my neighborhood in Hollywood. Absolutely. But at least I'm now aware of it. Before, it might have flagged and I might have done something differently. Even as, you know, uh, if people are Christian or if they're whatever, you're, or I'm, I'm into health, I'm not. Um, but like, even if I am, I'm still going to have a, I'm going to have a cookie one day, you know, or I'm going to think a bad thought. It's okay about that. It's like, but what are you doing? What are you doing? I think is really yeah. the, the key on the, that. The aware part. And that's, that's where the appreciation yeah. from this side of it all comes from. And yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. We all have prejudice. It will never go away. We're always going to judge other people. And part of it is survival. And I think that's part of what racism, where that comes from, is when you belong with a group of people. So I'm friends with white people in my socioeconomic geographical location. And somebody says something racist, I'm less apt to correct them because I want to fit in. Yeah, It's only been more in recent times. I, you know, I would say over the last decade where I've been very vocal more and more where somebody says something I'm like dude don't don't say shit like that like that's not cool I'm not okay with that 
You know, they're like, what was your, well, you got a black sibling? Do I have to be related to a black person to, <laughs> to not think that's cool? You said it's, it's awareness and it's learning of who we are. To say that humans aren't naturally racist is kind of wrong. I mean, there are things that we do that are built into our genes that say you're different from me, which means you're scary, which means you're bad, which somehow equates to me being better than you. I mean, it's just, it's there. But even in that book, in Grandmother's Hands, it's, it was white people fighting white people for, you know, centuries. So it was it's not even against skin color. We've now made it against skin color because, you know, in America helps to keep people down. But it was just judgments against classes and, yep. you know, different parts. So it's just fear, I think, instead of you'll, you'll take it from me, so I'm going to take it from you first. I, yeah, I don't even think it has to be about color skin. It has become that now but i also think too Matt, i think that was intentional thinking. because it's hard to tell what somebody's religion is but man i can tell by the color of his skin that he's different from me like i i feel yeah. like that was totally intentional what was totally intentional like how the u.s has turned racist <laughs> S- slavery being africans right Well, but there were also you know the in the history of america too it is you know as joe was saying based on class that after slavery was done there were poor white people and freed slaves and they were starting to come together because they were the same and they were starting to come together and raise up against the plantation owners and they saw oh my gosh they're going to outnumber us so then they pulled the white people aside and said they're going to take away your money they're going to take and so it started to become the blame and that's how they power and empower these neo-Nazis now and white nationalists and all that, it's like, they're the problem. So it's like, they take the suffering of poor white people and they're like the blame. They make the blame happen. So what our job is to now do is to organize these people that are suffering and be like, it's not blame. These people aren't going to give you a better job. They're not going to raise your money like they're owning these Fortune 500 companies to organize these people in a different way. And I think that's the thing that, that white nationalism, the supremacy does is blame black people and brown people for the problems of America when that's not even the actual truth. Nowhere near it. No, And that's a great point. That's a great uh, point and a great history lesson, too, because on that note, that's where a lot of people don't understand where uh, unions came from, um, you know, labor unions and everything. Like, for instance, who was doing all the damn work? The black people. So now that they've been freed, the work still needs to get done. And white folks are like, wait a minute. I need I need work. I need a job. My hands are soft. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. So the black people were getting all the work and they said, no, 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 no. We can't have that. We got to make it a way where we're getting this work and, and, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. we can confirm that we can get the work. And that's where labor unions came from. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. It's not to say that these people don't have reasons to be angry. People's suffering is real. You know, a lot of the people who are in the white nationalist groups, they're in kind of the poor bracket, but they're told that the reasons are poor because Democrats, because black people, because Jews, because, Uh you know, all these things. Uh I'm not saying that they're completely innocent, but now you and I are not going to get through to somebody with a QAnon flag and screaming that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist group or, (laughs) you know, the people Uh blaming everything Uh on Antifa. Antifa. Yeah. (laughs) But Antifa did not give us ketchup in our Dunkin' Donuts order, so. They damn sure didn't. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the other day I chipped a nail. I was like, Antifa. Um, uh, You know, we're not going to get through to them, but I think we can Mm -hmm. get through to people on the fringe. People who, as you referred to earlier, uh, as like neutral, Mm -hmm. who aren't, I guess, blatantly racist. 
just haven't made the extra right. step to be anti-racist. Do you think you've gotten through to anybody, whether through your video series or just in personal conversations? And if you have gotten any feedback from what you're doing, what has that looked like? I don't know, to be honest, specifically, because I keep trying to be like asking people for feedback or I would love any constructive criticism. I've gotten non-constructive criticism for sure. But I have had people that I didn't expect sort of come out of the woodwork and talk to me or share some of my things. Wait, what was the unconstructive criticism? I'm just curious. Oh, man. There, there were some anonymous or like they got a name with no picture on YouTube. There were some comments that even YouTube could block them, like were flagged. And some of it, like if the name is correct, it was like a Hispanic name that was just like, just sort of blasted me. And I was like, wait, what? I was like, did you watch the video? Like I'm, I'm on your side, my friend. Like I'm talking about being a white person and the problem. He's like, I'm and voting so for Trump. Just- <laughs> yeah, <that's- laughs> that might actually have yeah. been the case. You're correct. <laughs> um, the thing that you said too, Matt, just like even nonchalantly, like at a party, just saying something or being that person that sort of, cause I think, I think that is sort of, a subtle way forward too, to give other people the courage to do those tiny little things to speak up. Because if I was at a party and nobody said anything, I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, I should say something. But if I saw one person saying something, I'd be like, oh, I could do that next time. I could be that person that would do it. So I think it doesn't have to be a one, like they don't have to join the cause and put on a flag, you know, Black Lives Matter t-shirt and flag and all of that stuff. But like just getting them to be, like we said, aware, I think is the key. And so I think the feedback I got was being the people that I did not expect The people I expected really made me sad that sort of didn't do anything. But the people that I didn't expect that came out, well, that's who I'm actually talking to. And that's what I really want. And I literally was saying as I was making this, if I can just reach one person. And then that one person came and I was like, that's not enough. If I could just reach, you know, and like you just keep going. And it's the small things, thought provoking, just curiosity, just really making people feel safe in their exploration of something that has been passed on to them in such a terrible way and and in a way that they fear their own safety if they changed it. What I liken it to is like if we're in a classroom and everyone is scared to ask a question that we all have, somebody, Mm -hmm. the brave soul, it's probably the mom who's a part of the field trip will raise her hand like, just so we're all, we all understand what this means. That's kind of what I feel like you're doing. So thank you. (laughs) I I love that analogy. And I, I, I really think that that's what we all can be that mom. Yeah, we all we all need to be that mom. A field trip mom. <laughs> field trip mom. The field trip mom. I love that. You're on a field trip to racism. <laughs> be the chaperone. <laughs> That's the new sketch we could do. We all just take turns. We're, we're just walking around places. I like it. Just so we all understand, not calling out anyone personally, John. <laughs> <laughs> but and John is always Matt. Yeah. Every yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I look. I look Aryan. Might as well, right? Might as well. So. I'll share a quick little anecdote about what I did. And it wasn't, I felt proud afterwards. I felt like shitty, but I felt it was like necessary. And I think it's one of those things that gets easier and easier. So I was with friends. We were drinking over the summer. We were watching TV and the NBA came on and I was like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not that really into it.
it because the Cavs are already knocked out uh, when they opened up in the bubble. And someone's like, yeah, I'm not watching it because like, look, man, I'm all for black people and, and equality. But do they have to be so political? I go, what do you mean? Black Lives Matter is everywhere. They're they're doing the kneeling. And I go, um, is it politics, though? I go, isn't it just black people trying to get people to listen? Yeah, but do they need to do it here? And I go, well, hold on a second. Where do they do it? (laughs) And the thing is, I wasn't getting pissy. Like you said, like having an open conversation. I go, the thing is, people get mad when they march. They get mad when they kneel. Are they supposed to do it in the privacy of their own homes? Because if they're doing that, that's not really, you know, that's not a protest. And and what, what we always say is, if you're so tired of hearing it and seeing it, imagine how we feel living it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and watching your mom go through it, your right. grandma go through it, like on top of it all. That's a great point. What you just said It's 2021. Do y'all understand? We're not talking about like my great, great grandfather and great, great grandmother. My mother couldn't drink at certain water fountains. My mother. I mean, come on. y'all. This thing isn't like, you know, hundreds of years old. My mother could not drink at certain water fountains when she was a little girl. That water fountain has COVID all over it. You know that shit. Yeah, yeah, it does. They can have that one. Nobody can drink from that water fountain (laughs) now. (laughs) But, you know, even in the Kansas City game, when that first game started and everybody was booing and all of that stuff, and I, I know that everybody probably has heard this, but... Yeah, a lot of black people are like, okay, so you can like our music, you can like our food, you can watch us play sports, but when we actually are saying, but what about us as people, you boo us. And I think that that, I think if you are not in support of black lives, you don't get to watch them play football. You don't get to watch them play basketball because it's all in the same. Like, they're people. The fact that they're they're like, you can't bring politics in. And I'm like, but they're people. It's not like they're little robots running around. You don't get to separate that. It does kind of feel like some slave ownery kind of like all right boy here's a ball go and play yeah and that's what it feels yeah. like it's the Man- mandingo games 2021 yeah yeah it yeah. does feel like that <laughs> yeah and people got so upset when they stopped playing why because they show it showed how important they are to them and i wish they stopped playing i was sad when they went back because i'm like that's how you make a point you take away people's play toys or play time and then they they start to think about it i wish they shut the whole thing down everything and just were like until this then you don't get to watch me cavorting around on a field just like lysistrata right all the women didn't want the men to have have war to fight so they stopped having sex and then they walked around with big boners. And then I think they might have stopped the war. I don't know. <laughs> Instead, they just sword fought. <laughs> <laughs> On guard. And they all just were walking around going, Antifa. Antifa, Antifa, Antifa. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was trying to find this LBJ quote. LeBron how, James? It's about LeBron James. <laughs> When you were talking about how the people in power were trying to get the poor white people to realize that the poor black people are their enemies so that there wouldn't be equality and so these rich people would still be in power. Lyndon B. Johnson has this great quote, if you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man. I don't know if we can, should we? <laughs> this is a quote. No, no. I know what's okay, you're not, yeah, listen, just say it. Yeah. Okay. It's awkward. So, we like awkward. If you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. That, that is spot on. Seriously, spot on. That is. I mean, here, here's the thing. My greatest accomplishments besides my own children, I uh, got a psychology degree. I'm a pretty established actor or whatnot. That's that's LeJohn Woods. Okay, boom. You got 
Barack Obama, who was the director of the Harvard Law School and, I don't know, president of the United States of America. Muslim. (laughs) Right, exactly, right? (laughs) And people will still look him in the face and call him a nigger. I mean, the most established black man in the history of time. And bottom line, they don't give a damn. He's still a nigger. Just the truth. Just the truth. It's because he's established. And it's all those Florida men. (laughs) Florida man. (laughs) Right. So let's pause real quick for a little musical break. And actually, Nikki has our musical guest for this week. I do. I just wanted to celebrate my friend Caleb Hudson. His artist name is a boy named Barbara. He is just an amazing music producer. He is queer and he does this vocal driven house music and his story is just so amazing and that he had this corporate marketing job and got married and had the career and did all of that stuff. Then he realized he was gay and I mean, he he knew it, I'm sure, but he finally came out and left the corporate job to make music. And growing up, he used to wear his grandma's gold shoes. She had these gold heels and his parents were like, don't do that. If you do that, you're gay and all of that stuff. So when he came out finally as gay, his grandma was the only one that supported him. And her name is Barbara, which is why his his artist name is a boy named Barbara. And uh, he always wears gold shoes when he when he makes music because it's a tribute Aww. to her. So that's awesome. He's just a really amazing person. And his first single was just released just recently, and it's called "Do Your Thing." And you can find him on Spotify as a boy named Barbara. And his Instagram is Cal Cal Hudson. That is dope. I love that story. Nikki did us another favor by teeing up our snacks, sips, and sweets highlight. And who is that, Nikki? So it just sort of plays right off of uh, Boy Named Barbara's Do Your Thing, and it's uh, Misha's Kind Foods. And um, I just wanted to sort of plug another. It's a black-owned business, and it's vegan, and it is the most amazing cheese spread that's in California, but I think you can order it. Ian Martin, who is somebody that I know well and is amazing, he made this because vegan cheese sucks. And he talks, <laughs> like, that's their slogan. It's like, vegan cheese sucks. And there's no soy, there's no gluten, there's it's just cashew and almond-based, and it's just these amazing spreads. That's huge, because I, I technically have a, a soy and gluten intolerance. Really? Yeah, I have a lot of food intolerance. I'm anti-food racist, but my body is not. <laughs> and so like I have this intolerance to all these different things, and it's hard to find vegan stuff, which is one of the things stopping me from eating more uh, vegan yeah. and vegetarian stuff. So that's actually huge. 
that they found a way it to do huge. it where they're not just filling it with corn and all that crap. And soy, like you said, because I know a lot of guys don't don't like to have soy. And he, the thing that um, Chef Ian does is they make it like real cheese. Like they really age it and they make it. It's just using cashew and almond milk. There's sun-dried tomato spread. There's a jalapeno spread. There's a lox spread that I kid you not tastes like lox. It's creepy in the best way. Well. <laughs> um, there's a smoked cheddar and black truffle. It's Misa's Kind Foods. You can find them on Instagram on that or online. M-I-S-H-A, Misha's Kind Foods. Um, dot com or at that on Instagram. But it's it's just it's really an amazing company. He goes around to different farmers markets and they just stand for really beautiful things in this world. So support a black owned business and vegan and also really freaking tasty. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Looking funky. Uh Nikki what does being anti-racist look like? It sounds like it's a lot of work, and why should I want to do it? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think it looks different for everyone. And by the way, the thing that I think I'm working on right now is going to be a white people's resource list. And sort of like, if you're looking to do something, here's some books to read, or here's that group to join, or here's this. Even when I became vegan, I'm like, now what the fuck do I eat? I don't even know how to cook this. Like, what do I do? <laughs> I guess I'll just have some eggs and cheese. Shit. <laughs> yeah. um, chips and salsa. That's it. And so it is a learning curve because we've never, it's a new language and it's a new way of being. And so I think giving yourself, just not being so hard on yourself, not needing to be perfect um, and not wanting to like wear yourself out is is a key. But and I think uh, white supremacy in me, she talks about like, it's going to be exhausting. This is going to be hard. And you're not going to get accoladed for it. This is not for you to be like, it. you know, as you had said, Joe, pat it on the back. Like, you're not saving anybody. It's for your own work. It's for what you're doing. So it is a long haul. And knowing that it, it's not that so you don't blow your wad, if you will, right away, I think is is really key. But I think for me, I am continually reading. I am reading probably like two books at a time. One right now is My Grandmother's Hands and Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Two really amazing books. Those are my current ones. Um, reading, joining these groups. There's so many beautiful, and they're all Zoom. So the Los Angeles ones right now for White People for Black Lives Wear LA are all Zoom. So people from all over the country can do it. They've got workshops and, and a support group. Like they've got these Saturday dialogues where I can show up with other white people who are struggling and making mistakes. And we get to make them together, not harming people of color while we're doing it. And not needing to ask them for help. And, and I think that's the work. But white people for black lives talked about a lot is what's your personal stake in this? Like, it can be great that you want people to be equal. And it can be great that, you know, you want to feel better. But, like, you don't stay in a cause, in a movement as an organizer unless you have personal skin in the game. So how has white supremacy harmed you as a person? How How is white privilege harming you? And so... Like, I know personally, and I'm still fleshing this out, but I know personally, like, my life is so white. It's so boring. Like, it it doesn't have color and flavor and foods and all of these things and perspectives and histories. Like, LaJon, I would love to know about your mom and, like, what she had to go through in, in the water fountain and all of her life. And I, I don't have that story. I don't have that history in my circle and in my life. I just think looking at how it really harms you is sort of a way that it can be an entry point for you to, again, as we said, selfishly see 
well, what, how can my life be better without this? I have two comments and a question. One, <laughs> the idea that white supremacy is built on people trying to be perfect. Watching the people storm the Capitol, the only thing that I imagine is perfect in these people is their bloodlines. <laughs> they are obviously inbred, but like their spelling's not perfect. And I know this is being super judgy and, and this is prejudice in a different way, but they gross. Um, second, <laughs> they nasty. <laughs> Real quick, though, have you seen that video? There's a video on TikTok about uh, black people saying, like, man, you white people don't even know how to be criminals properly. And they're like, hi, what's your name? It's like, hi, I'm Nicola Graham. I'm from Los Angeles, California. And they're like doing that. And they're like, man, you're not even mad. You don't like, you can see your face. You're telling people where you are. Like, you don't even know how to criminal, right? It's really funny. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is bad. <laughs> yeah. My second comment was, while it is certainly not the reason to do it, I will say the support I got from a lot of my black friends and even some of the people who I didn't even know were my friends was pretty huge. It at least comforted me to know that I was doing the right thing, that they were okay that I wasn't 100% right. And you don't do it for the thank you. And I would tell them, please don't thank me. I'm not trying to be the white savior. Just tell your other black friends that I'm great. (laughs) (laughs) Antifa. But you will see some appreciation from people. And like John, John was, man, one of the first times I sat down with him, I I was just kind of awkward about having the conversation. He's like, man, I go, what can I do? He's like, you're doing it. Just speak up. Speak speak in your voice. So my question is actually the same one I had to Nikki, I posed to John. You know, what does a non-person of color being anti-racist look like to you? That's a really good question. It is. I don't even know if I have an, an, an immediate answer. Uh, I guess it, it would be a person who, I, going back to what I said in the first place, is aware and making it known that they're aware and not having the fear of uh, with them, with their family and friends, knowing that they're aware and knowing that they're being made aware. That's what it looks like. I mean, it's not something that you can necessarily uh, wear on your forehead or on, on a T-shirt, even though I guess you can. But <laughs> but um, <laughs> we'll get that going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, 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 yeah. Start, we'll start that campaign. But um, it's not. Yeah. Not having that fear. I feel comfortable with that answer. Not having that fear from anybody who looks like you that you're aware of what's going on that's being perpetuated by people who look like you. If that makes sense. Your family, your friends who they know exactly what's happening and you are not afraid to be that one in that crowd to say, yeah, that's some bullshit among them and not just among people who look like me. That's what it looks like. Right. Yeah. If that adds up, hopefully it does. Cause sometimes some of the shit I say doesn't make a damn <laughs> bit of sense, but hopefully that, that makes sense. I think that's mm-hmm. great. I have some people on social media, um, some black friends that were just like, Hey, white people, we see you, we see that you're posting about the beach and your food. And like, we see that you're not speaking up and like, I see you. And if you're doing that, you're not my friend. And it was sort of one of the things that I was like, well, okay, I'm not, I don't want to post just to be like, Hey, look, I'm posting. Right. But I was like, authentically, like, how can I be posting something and, and not just fluff. I always say in my things, like reach out to me, like we can talk about, or I can show you. And I, I do think sort of forming an army of other white people that are speaking out for this like when matt had said you know posting it and like the cream (laughs) the white and 
dark cream will rise to the top and, and the rest will go away. And now you see your new army of people, your new people that you want to be surrounded with in life. Because I was afraid, LaJon. I, I was nervous to, to start speaking out with anti-racism, but that's part of the white silence. It's just not enough to to believe in it anymore. You have to declare it or at least talk about it. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Joe? What's your What's your idea of it? Yeah, certainly being vocal and talking to people that look like them about it, but also talking to people of color, letting them know that like I'm I'm not black, but I'm like somewhat more tan than than some people. So <laughs> yeah, people are probably a little more hesitant to be racist around you, but not as much as you would think. <laughs> no, but I'm saying probably more so around you than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. yeah, I'm like in between, right? A little. So I think it's important to also show that you're you have a long way to go learning as well. I've seen a lot of people on social where they are patting themselves on the back and they just want those likes and they just want other white people to be like, yeah, good job. Or like my black friends are so proud of me. But like what what are you doing? I don't know how much of this I should share, but I was in a relationship and I know that there are a lot of different factors to it. But the mother, I realized she was racist to a very problematic extent and I was even told like oh you're Lebanese I heard uh, you should never marry a Lebanese person like why would you why would you say that stuff to me but um, my partner wasn't standing up for me in a way that I thought that was important and I think that being anti-racist you would but that's uncomfortable because that's also making that person being put in a position where there she's upset with her mom I guess I don't really know but I mean just being willing to try to start these difficult conversations it's scary to go down these roads and you know you've lost friends and family with it so losing respect is is as hard as losing the person as a friend i think if you're going to be anti-racist you have to be brave you know because it's Uh it's uh it's a journey and it's not like it's not like everyone's just going to go to discovery zone and have a good time like we're we're trying to fight injustice. Is there still Discovery Zone? And if so, keep LeJohn away from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the next. Hey, you little fucker, I didn't say you there. could discover that. <laughs> Discovering. Yeah. Oh, the, the, they open every um, White People for Black Lives meeting with, um, we don't say that this is a safe space because white people have always been and felt safe. We say that this is a brave space. So I think that was the perfect word, Joe, is, is it is a brave space that we are walking into and asking us all to be brave, but in our brave facing, not having to be perfect. And I think that really is something that that white people can just start, just take the first step. And I think that that's really the, the brave aspect. I will say one of the groups of people who are working against the effort, whether or not they realize it, are the people who want to correct everybody. There's a big difference between correcting somebody who says something blatantly racist and somebody who says something out of just ignorance as in not knowing. And there's always the uppity people. And I think it's the same ones who like patting themselves on the back who are like, excuse me, the term is African-American. I'm like, actually, my friend's black. He said, don't call him (laughs) (laughs) African-American. So that's the other thing is we need to give ourselves a little bit of grace and we need to give other white people a little bit of grace because that's the only way that we're going to get them to speak up yeah and and as somebody who encountered someone who was i thought being racist i became aggressive which did not help right so i think that there needs to be a way that you can deal with that kind of behavior Mm -hmm. and not to just reflect it and perpetuate it but to try to 
correct it. Yeah. And this might not work for everyone. Here's one strategy that's worked really well with me. Be white and a man. Yeah, first be white and be blonde and, and yell things in German. People stay away. Auf the knee. Yeah. If you yell Zig Heil and march down the road like with straight legs, people leave know. you alone. I don't know why. Yeah. That's odd. No, what's worked for me is when somebody says something uh, like blatantly racist or just ridiculous, instead of getting in their face, I play like over the top, nice and ignorant. Yeah. Oh, wait, why do you think, why do you think that? And they're like, oh, because, oh, uh, you know, all black people are thieves or something. And you're like, hmm. oh, no, I mean, <laughs> do you have black friends? Like, do they act like that? Because, I mean, I have some black friends. They don't act like that. And then suddenly their tone changes. Right. Yeah, that's the curiosity, I think, is the, the why. Like, if you can take a deep breath and not let it make all of your blood boil, but just take a deep breath and then just be like, but, but that's, that's interesting. Why do you think that? And there is this like conflict guide that it's like all these different ways to talk to you. And Matt, you sort of did a few just like, well, why is that? But then also, okay, that's interesting in my experience. So like bringing your own, so it's not judgment, like, no, that's not true. And this, and, and just immediately shutting them down, but really just excavating with curiosity because people do want to talk. People do want to be heard. It's an innate human need. And so if you just open up that without judgment and then let them form their own thing but you can also say it like well that's interesting I've never actually experienced a, a black person that has stolen things but I can I can see where you're coming from but then why you know just like continue to get them talking because I that's what my disconnect was when people got me to talk I realized I didn't have the answer I was like oh well, well because and then they asked and I'm like because because you know like I didn't <laughs> I didn't know and so, like, I feel like you'll find, they'll find their own holes if you allow them. You know what's going to always make this difficult, unfortunately, though? Without being a person of color and experiencing the things that we experience, because just as much as those that march with the Black Lives Matter individuals, they're there in that moment, then they go back to their world. Yeah. In their world, they don't have to experience none of that stuff. And again, it's not your fault. And we appreciate so much that you're trying your best to put yourself in our shoes and on our path and our history and everything to understand why we're marching and why we're speaking out and everything else. But it's always going to be, damn, am I, am, I, am I wrong in saying a losing battle? Because that's kind of what it feels like, especially from a black man. It's like, man, thank you. Like, mm -hmm. Matt, Joe, Mike, thank you, thank you so much. But I know, damn you'll still never really fully understand. Right, and that's what we have to understand too, is that we will never fully yeah. understand unless we do blackface. And that's what I'm trying to get at. And that's what I'm trying to get at. We all need to do blackface. Right? <laughs> <laughs> A call to action. In that, Lazan, I got you know really burned out because I kind of came out hard and I was also doing all this election stuff. And so by like November, December, I was just exhausted. And I was like, I'm just going to not do these these workshops, the poly ed workshops that they have. And I was like, wow, what a privilege I have that I can turn it off, that I can just remove myself from it. So I, I think you're exactly correct in that what a blessing and a privilege we white people have that if we don't want to look at it, we don't have to. But you have to look at it every day. Yes, you can turn it off. And man, that is so yeah. huge because what pissed us off so much about when they were saying Black Lives Matter then they would say blue lives matter. I can't turn off being black. Right. It can never happen. Black isn't a uniform. Exactly. You chose mm -hmm. to be a cop. And just like you chose that, you can say, you know what? Resign. I quit. I'm good. And that's that. 
your mm-hmm. your your career, your your stint, it's over. This here yeah. is never over. That's why I had to unplug from social media for a couple of months because I was so exhausted and because it's like going through puberty in like a month instead of like over a year. It was like going through like anti-racism puberty in like a very yeah. short period of time. You know, I think that's why they call it woke. Yeah. You like start seeing the world in a very different thing. And and, it, and what was kind of like beautiful and heartbreaking simultaneously is one of my friends, this black lady reached out to me and she was like, Matt, I think you just need to unplug. Mm. I go, but that's not fair because I'm white you don't get to unplug from being black. And that's mm-hmm. and that's kind of what you said is kind of what I said to her. I go, it seems shitty, like I'm working against myself. And she goes, no, it's because you are white. You get to do it. And if I could, I would too. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so like being told to unplug by somebody who's like, I get it, but you're going to kill yourself, white boy, is essentially what you're saying. <laughs> and you're, you're a white and boy we need. We need. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, but also you can unplug from shoving it out into the world or as you do so beautifully, Matt, you inquire and you're curious and you play both sides and you ask these questions. So I think that's why it's even more draining for you because you really are having thought provoking messages and thought provoking questions. So, but there's a difference between unplugging from that and unplugging from the knowledge of racism. So you can just still read a book or you can watch videos yeah. or you can do things because even one of the black organizers that I protest with, he was talking about how important, especially for black people, it is for mental care, mental health and taking care of them because they also have to, as much as they can, unplug within the work. And one of the things that I hear in our collective a lot, they're like, just think of you as a choir. And so when everybody's singing, if you have to rest your voice a little, know that there's other voices behind you that will carry the song. It doesn't mean you have to like leave and never come back to the choir, but you can just rest your voice. And I think by continuing to do it behind the scenes, maybe whatever that looks like to you, I think is okay. Like, again, it's the perfectionism. Like, you don't have to be saying it out loud, but you can still be reading a book or you can still be going to a workshop or something. But yeah. rest is in mental health in this movement is so important because we do need you long term. How you just described it was beautiful. And I appreciate that because we already have enough white guilt going on, you know, and that just kind of like triples on top of it. I think what has made it more difficult is the isolation and quarantine. Yeah. Because I feel like I'm doing nothing other than getting myself even more riled up. So let me second what she just said for anybody who didn't fully understand that Mm -hmm. for white folks. It's okay to have a little bit of self-love, unplug a little bit now and then, because we are going through this learning curve at such a rapid pace. It doesn't mean you're a victim. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're the hero, the savior, but you can't sprint a marathon. Okay. Take your time, take a drink of water and then get back into the race. It's the long haul. And I, I do think the guilt and the shame are a lot of the ways that white people use it to not even show up at all. Yeah. Um, so I think if you just allow yourself to be exactly as you are and that to be okay, uh, not to promote another podcast, but there's this podcast called Ear Hustle. I don't know if y'all listen to it and it's, it comes inside from the San Quentin prison and it is fucking amazing. But there was this one thing on an episode a couple uh, weeks ago that was, the the woman was talking about how she used to get in fights in prison, like something aggravator and she fought and she fought. And then one time she stopped 
and she thought she just backed off from it and did the right thing. And then she didn't see the fruits of her doing the right thing right then. She saw it months later and maybe like years later. And she said, and that was the, that was sort of the aha moment is like when you, when you push up against something and you judge something, you, you feel sort of the immediate gratification, if you will, even if it's wrong. But when you're doing the good work, you don't immediately see something. And that's what this work is. It's the long haul. You might not see that you're making a difference. People might not let you know. It's not about the gratification, but eventually your seeds will grow and will develop into something. And so just knowing that you're in it for the long haul and that you're sort of making a beautiful anti-racist garden is the um, goal, I think. <laughs> you know, you should write your own book because I will say what you just said describes being a good person in general, even above and beyond racism, being a good person, karma, the way karma happens, it never happens instantly. It never happens in this thing where like you feel the gratification. I hate that. I know. <laughs> I really it do. Sucks. I was just talking to Matt about that. The I other know. Day. That's what she looked at me when you're saying that kind of like, fuck you. Um, but, but it's, I'll tell you, it is it is true because it just never happens on the timeline we want. But when it does happen, it's so much more fulfilling. And the thing is, I think especially as Americans, we confuse fulfillment with happiness. Happiness is that momentary yeah. gratification and fulfillment is that, mm, damn, this is rooted in more. Like you're talking about the garden. Mm. You know, there's a big difference between eating a tomato and growing a tomato plant. Mm. And, and that's yeah. what it is. Grow your anti-racist garden. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Nikki, yeah. do you think that, um, this may sound like a strange question, do you think, <laughs> no seriously, do you think that some people think that being anti-racist comes with success, a platform, or some kind of progress, thinking that they have to hit some kind of plateau, then say, now I can be anti-racist? Are you saying, do you think some people are doing it to sort of elevate themselves even more? In a plot, is that what you're saying? Or that it's a privilege to be anti-racist? Like, are people only willing to do it once they get to once a they, high enough point where go. it's like, well, then now it will make a difference? Right, right. I'm not. I'm not anywhere near there, if that helps. Um, <laughs> I'm just lonely in my apartment with my cat. That's definitely not my experience. But And I do know that a lot of people in our collective are very low-class, poor-class. There's a the group that I called with on Surge. Um, it's called Southern Crossroads, and they're all about activating poor white people in the South. And so I do think um, there's a lot of a lot of us that are in the fight, a lot of white people are in a fight that are poor class and low class. But I think maybe you hear about it, maybe from uh, from the people that are showing it more, maybe are that people that are more established or the next level, like the Chelsea Handlers of the world. Right. <laughs> Perhaps right. it's um, access to education that makes it more possible. Yeah. I think that's that's a really good point. I think it plays into the perfection that she's talking about is if I'm going to be anti-racist, I need it to be successful. And I need yeah. I need to have a megaphone. And if I don't, then what's the point? It won't do anything. I, I mean, is that? Well, I, I asked the question because I'm looking at it from the opposite side. It might speak more towards privilege, but I'm thinking about it in regards to if I was a white person, why would I? Why would I want to even do this, even though if I felt that way? And here's kind of what I'm getting. At. Remember when I made the example on the previous show about the NFL players? 
or the NBA is probably the best example. What NBA player who is up to be drafted has worked hard and has the ability to get this big-ass contract, which one of them black guys are going to say, you know what, I know I worked hard, I know I can get drafted and everything, I know I can get that contract, but go ahead and give it to Dan Smith. Yeah. Yeah, because you know what, I know I'm more athletic than him, I know I'm better, but... Let's go ahead and get it. I'm growing this karma garden. It's yeah. fine. There's, I, yeah. I tell you, man, there's there's so many things to unpack there. And, and you did. You brought that. That was kind of your closing thoughts. Mm-hmm. That was a good one. One, we kind of said it's not a zero-sum game. Right. But it's because of the way we've defined the cultural lines. Me making sure that you have as much as me isn't saying I'm giving anything up. If anything, it's saying this barrier is horseshit. It's a man-made barrier. Right. And while, yeah, it is important to say I want to make sure equality and why would I go out of my way? You're right. Mm -hmm. There is no incentive in American culture for being anti-racist. Individually, perhaps. But I mean, what about your kids or what about like rising tides lift all ships? Or what about when we can't play in the NBA anymore, and then what happens? And Dan Smith is a fucking cop now. (laughs) (laughs) With a chip on his shoulder. That being said, being anti-racist doesn't mean I lose something. like that. And I think that's the thing. Like It's not like, oh, you should be drafted instead of me. It's I get to be better. I get to learn more. I get to expand. It's actually, oh, I get to be drafted and I get to expand. And I think that that's the zero-sum game. It's not, it is, it's not them or me. It's by the way, if we all come together, it's all of us against those tiny people that are shutting us all down. There's this one end part of a quote from Ann Braden, who was a white female activist and educator, and she was she was brilliant. And she's talking about people of color. And she goes, Because they are at the bottom of this society, when the people of color move, the foundation shifts. In a sense, the battle is and always has been a battle for the heart and mind of white people in this country. The fight against racism is not something we're called on to help people of color with. We need to become involved as if our lives depend on it because in truth, they do. And that's the key is like, this is not about me helping you, John. This is about me helping me. And this is about me helping my country. White supremacy has just kept us down. And that's why I think it's so important for people in their personal stake to see what you've lost in this game of white supremacy that someone else has made up and taught to you and see that you're actually suffering from it. We might be feeling like we're getting ahead, but we're actually suffering from it and how it makes you suffer. So then you want to change it for you, not so I want to change it for black people and equality. It's it's me that's suffering. Me helping well me, done. that is the yeah. American dream. <laughs> that is. Exactly. That's the American yeah. dream. Yeah. <laughs> Good old capitalism, baby. Yeah. We're all super brave in hindsight. Yeah. How come during Hitler's rise to power during, uh, you know, 1930s Germany, weren't more people like standing up and speaking out against it? Where are you now? <laughs> like, seriously, everyone always looks back and it's like it rarely is that black and white and dead obvious. Yet we're at a time where it is again and people are still like, yeah, but uh, Antifa, <laughs> they, burned down a, they, they robbed a target. Yeah. Maybe they stole. Maybe they stole a backpack. I don't know. Yeah, why are they so angry? Yeah. They're not slaves yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's sad, and it is lack of education. It is lack. I mean, I just I want to say this: whether or not I have kids, or you know, whatever, I want to be able years from now, if I'm still alive, 
tell people that I stood up and did the right thing for my own integrity. There's there's the selfishness for me. I will not be able to lay down in my coffin upon my death and feel like there'll be bad karma coming my way if I didn't do this because it's just so obvious right versus wrong. Yeah. Sorry. No, I just got a visual of you like crawling into your coffin. It was like, bye, like yeah. laying down. That's coffin. what I was like. I was like, who lays in their coffin and is like, let me think about this. This guy. <laughs> <laughs> what does the future of your journey look like in activism? And where can people check you out? Um, thank you just first of all so much for having me, all of y'all, Joe and LeJohn and Matt and Mike on the the soundboard. I just I so appreciate being here and talking with all of y'all and I love listening to your podcast. And so keep on doing the good work that y'all are doing. It, it's just really an honor. See, thank you. Feedback is good. And so I, I was one of the first people who gave you feedback on your show, by the way. Yeah, you did. And you watched it like you didn't know I was doing it because you were off Facebook. And so I sent you like one link, like here's one. You're like, I've watched them all up to this point. So like you you did it, and I still appreciate that. It really does matter. And they gave you actual feedback. You did. I'm saying that because you and I talked on the phone yesterday, and we talked about you put this stuff out there, and people come out of the woodwork yeah. later on. As a matter of fact, you'll be talking about something else. So I go, yeah, no, I listen to your podcast. I really like that. I'm like, why haven't you reached out and told us? Yeah, would be nice to know. <laughs> Am I shouting into a void? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let us know, white people, that you hate our show. That's cool. And let Nikki know that you hate her thing, too. We need yeah, to hear hey. feedback. Constructive, constructive. I'll just yes, my, I was kidding. Like, I, I will listen and work with you if you're constructive. I think my journey to continue on as an organizer is I'm really excited about my the White People for Black Lives group. I started into like sort of their leadership program and just going, there's a new study plus action program they're doing where you study all of these major topics like abolition and story of justice and just beautiful things. And then we put them into action. So I, finding things like that in your area, I think is very important to a collective of white people that you can fail with and work through things with. I'm also now going into perhaps the next season, if you will, of Anti-Racist White Chick. I have a few topics like that resource guide and personal stake that I'd love to explore a little bit more. And I'm actually writing a comedy pilot now, sort of as marrying my anti-racist journey in, um, in a lot of ways that I am kind of excited about because I think it will it actually is sort of more going in that way, but a little more subtly sort of talking about racism that it will be there. But I think it's actually becoming less subtle, but I'm excited to, to get that out there because, as we've said, just letting people laugh and seeing the foibles of white people and how messy it can be is still OK. Wasn't there somebody who was going to pick up your series, too, or, or it was going to be on a new platform? Yes, yeah, so there's a, an amazing website called The Good Men Project that is going to, I think, start releasing all 10 episodes um, of Anti-Racist White Chick next week. So it'll start going out, and, and that platform is all about how to be a better man in the world. Um, wink, wink. So <laughs> I just... I'm I'm excited just to, to possibly get some just some more white eyes on it. Um, really great. Uh, you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Nicola and I C O L A underscore Graham. Um, and I just love to hear from anyone of any thoughts and races and colors and shapes and sizes. Just anything would be fantastic. I, I appreciate and welcome it all. Do you get a bunch of thirsty dudes? <laughs> well, if they're hot. 
Bring it. <laughs> well, I'm just curious. You know it's totally different, you doing it versus me doing it, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly right. <laughs> Nikki, we appreciate you so much. It's been so nice to watch somebody else kind of parallel go through this journey at the same time I have because we can kind of make mistakes together and, and give each other feedback. So I appreciate that very much from, from me to you. Me too. Nikki, I, I definitely appreciate your, your calls, your purpose, your desire and your passion, because as we talked about it before, it's not necessary. You don't have to do it. You're choosing this. And I love the fact that, that you're taking this path and having the courage and lacking the fear to take that path. So um, I really wish you all the best. Keep going. Keep rising onward and upward. If there's anything this black man can do to, to help the cause, don't you hesitate to reach out because I'll be on the case. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for illuminating things that we wouldn't necessarily be able to see, just being willing to make the mistakes in public. Because like we talked about, I think that is important for white people to see it's okay to make these mistakes as long as they're doing it for a good cause. Right. Absolutely. I so I so appreciate all of that. And I appreciate y'all doing the exact same thing in your own in your own way, but also doing it with, with and through each other from different lenses and um, colors and sexes. And so it's just so important of what you're doing. And, and I appreciate you giving me the sounding board, but also the interaction so that I can continue to check myself and grow and learn. So it's, it's so important. Um, and I'm happy to collaborate with y'all personally and professionally. It's really exciting. Well, we'd love that. Yeah, we'll we'll be in your pilot. I'll direct it. You guys act in it. John yeah. can be the black guy. Easy. Deal. Done. We're going to have a few. It's going to be a very what? colorful show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was so great talking to you. Thanks, yeah. Nikki. Thank you so much, you guys. It was so nice to meet y'all and see you. And thank you so much to our musical guest, a boy named Barbara. Check him out, as well as Misha's Kind Food. And we will have the URLs and links in the bio in the write-up for the episode. So please go out there and support these awesome people. We just went there. Now you can go to thegoingtherepodcast.com for links to our socials and all the places you can hear the podcast. Hey there. So what did you think about this episode? And be honest, let us know by leaving us a review, you know, sharing your thoughts and subscribing and be a cool person. Tell a friend. This podcast is made possible by its hosts and Frame One Media in association with Lindsey Baker, Tyler Kubisti, Michael Madgar, Joe Cali, and Bobby Thomas.